Hi there, Neil here. Obviously, you love to travel. That's why you're listening to this podcast. Circa, our app available right now from the App Store on iOS, is filled with podcasts and guides for travelers. But more than that, it has a feature that we're calling the Circa Concierge, where you can have any question about any place you're traveling answered by real people on the ground. We're giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. And hey, if you've got questions about Barcelona, you might even get me. Because I love to help people discover my city. And if you're the same way for the city where you live, then we want you to become part of the Circa Concierge too. Right now, we're searching for concierges in Barcelona, Rome, London, Paris, Madrid, Venice, and New York City. Don't see your city listed? That's okay. We'll be rolling out new cities throughout the year, and yours might just be next. If you love where you live and love to help travelers, sign up now to be a Circa Concierge. Help out our users and earn tips for the knowledge you have about your own city or country. Head over to circatravel.com forward slash concierge and sign up today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The smash of glass rings out on a cold night on the outskirts of Amsterdam. It's March 30th, 2020. It's 3.15 a.m., and while the rest of the world are hunkered down in their homes, two audacious, balaclavaed, hammer-wielding art thieves are on the hunt. The place? The Singer Lauren Museum. The target? The Parsonage Garden at Noon Inn in Spring by Vincent van Gogh. Thought to be worth $6 million. The plan? Pull off the boldest art heist of the decade, and steal a painting by the world's most popular artist on the anniversary of his birthday. It's a smash and grab operation. One mass thief clambers through a broken window and races through the museum's entrance before he sees his small prize. An early Van Gogh, dark colors, brooding strokes, a mysterious priest dressed in black looking out at you. He grabs it off the wall and runs for the exit. Van Gogh under one arm. He takes nothing else. 136 years of history and $6 million gone in just a few minutes. The two thieves hop on a getaway scooter and make off into the night. And no one has seen them or the painting since. But there's a sense of deja vu. This has all happened before in the same city and to the same artist. The singer Lauren Heist feels like an exact replica of a hit on Amsterdam's Van Gogh Museum in 2002. Because Amsterdam, that city of canals and coffee shops, of Rembrandt and Vermeer, and of course Van Gogh, 
has been home to two of the 21st century's most notorious art thefts. Today, producers Harry Stott and Jennifer Carr are both headed to the Dutch capital to tell us a story about this remarkable city of art, some equally remarkable art heists, and the Netherlands' most famous son, Vincent van Gogh. Welcome to Passport. A destination isn't always a place. Sometimes it's a new way of seeing things. I'm Neil Innes. And I'm Andres Bartos. From Frequency Machine, this is Passport. Your ticket to everywhere. When you think of art and when you think of the Dutch, you think of one name. Vincent van Gogh, of the starry night, the sunflowers, the lost ear, and the descent into madness. He's the epitome of the romantic, tortured artist, a genius never appreciated in his time. Now? Well, it's fair to say his stock has risen, as has Amsterdam's reputation as an art hub. If you're looking for up-and-coming contemporary artists or incredible graffiti, Amsterdam has got it. And if you want world-leading art institutions, it's got those too. The pick of the bunch is the Van Gogh Museum, with an ever-changing canvas of exhibitions that reimagine his work for today. It's a touchstone for art lovers across the world. And if you're one of them and on your way to Amsterdam, your trip is going to include Van Gogh. But Vincent is also a favorite for others headed to Amsterdam with more sinister motives. Art thieves. Van Gogh is one of, if not the most stolen artists of all time. Since the Nazis confiscated various Van Gogh paintings in 1937, more than 40 of his masterpieces have been stolen in 15 different heists from across the world. 28 were taken in the Netherlands, one of the world's epicenters for the fine art black market. And while all 28 of the Van Goghs nicked in the Netherlands have been recovered, on March 30th, number 29 went missing. Amsterdam has one of the biggest networks in the world, the number one spot in Europe. It will beat Barcelona, Madrid. It will beat Paris. It will beat London if it comes to crime. This is the man behind one of those Van Gogh heists, Octave Durham. He's an art thief. But I think Amsterdam is known for it, you know. It's Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> in 2002, he actually stole a Van Gogh from the Van Gogh Museum. But there are good guys in this story too. Because when paintings are stolen, there are people whose job it is to recover them. People like Arthur Brand. He's an art detective. People always tell me, why do you know almost every big criminal in, in the world? And I said, look, if stolen crime would be... Um, at the Salvation Army, I would be sitting there drinking a cup of tea. But I have to sit with Russian criminals drinking drinking vodka, you know? That's just the way it is. These two guys are both Dutch, both based in Amsterdam. They're natural adversaries. They were in a cat and mouse hunt over a pair of stolen Van Goghs for years. But in 2020, they've been thrust together by the heist at the Singer Lauren. It's a story straight out of Hollywood. One that skips the coffee shops and red light district to go deep in the murky world of art and crime in Amsterdam. 
Have you guys been to Amsterdam? Oh, yes. You've been? Yeah. That was a, that was that was a loaded answer. <laughs> yeah. Can you remember it? Yeah. I mean, it was, it's a very, <laughs> very weird story because I went with my class. We went with Model United Nations representing Swaziland. Big up. Wow. My memory of Amsterdam is going into a museum and coming across a classmate, a friend of mine, and he looked very distressed. And I was like, you okay? He's like, so I just smoked some hash. <laughs> He's like, I'm freaking out right now. <laughs> See, uh, that, that is the story that you often get, I think, from Amsterdam is the charming side of it and then the sin. Definitely. You know? Yeah. You've got these two elements where everyone's basically just in a lovely art museum or by a canal getting really high. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of the city of inclusivity, isn't it? On every level. Yeah. Like anything goes pretty mm. much. Which is kind of nice because that's kind of what this story's doing, isn't it? It's mm. kind of straddling the uh, <laughs> line between <laughs> charm and sin. The finest yeah. crime Just possible. like Amsterdam does. <laughs> oh, that's funny. But you've picked the champagne of crime. The finest crime possible. Smashing a window and nicking a painting. <laughs> What is it like? Sunflower? Doesn't Van Gogh have like three of the most? Yeah, I think Starry Night. Starry Night. Yeah. Sunflowers. Sunflowers. Self-portrait. One of those self-portraits, I'm sure, mm. is worth a lot. Yeah. And they're just crazy, crazy money. And yet, he only sold one painting when he was alive. Yeah. He only sold one. Yeah. But it definitely is. It's a cool place to start. Going to Amsterdam was the first time I was ever in Europe, so I had this image of like fog in these canals and these dodgy looking white people going around in these alleyways. These Dodgy tiny... looking white people. Yeah, it's the first time I got to see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it was immediately like, what's going on in this town, you know? And where can I get weed? Yeah. <laughs> Follow weed? the white people. <laughs> <laughs> they had too much. <laughs> Paris steals the limelight for the Impressionists, while Rome gets the glory for the 16th century frescoes. And Amsterdam? Amsterdam is still gilded by the glorious golden age of the 1700s, a time when the Dutch Republic was considered a world leader in trade, art, science, and the military. Today, this grandeur endures. It's still seen and felt when you hop on a barge and glide through a hundred kilometers of Graschen. That's canals in Dutch. You'll feel the full weight of the Golden Age in the canal ring. Not surprisingly, Europeans nickname it the Venice of the North. Besides Amsterdam's medieval canals, there's also 1,500 cobbled bridges to cycle or stroll over, connecting 900 tiny islands in a tapestry of intimate corners filled with boutiques and bustling cafes, red-lit windows, and of course, a never-ending sea of bicycles. In a city with only 800,000 residents, there's an estimated 881,000 bikes. The 17th century for many art historians is seen as the moment Amsterdam earned its credentials as an art city with clout. Baroque masters Rembrandt van Rijn, Johannes Vermeer, Frans Hals, each with their own technique and signature, all unified by an aesthetic characterised by richness, drama, tension, and also ostentatious still lives, known as Pronkstilleven. Remember the girl with the pearl earring? That's a Vermeer, 
and Pronkst 11 at its best. Is there a better word to describe anything, ever? All that said, the golden age and its sumptuous drama is a far cry from Amsterdam's artistic sensibility today. If you speak to the locals, the current art scene here is low-key, laid-back and ultra-diverse. A pretty fair description for the Dutch. The gallery owners are more likely to be smoking spliffs than sipping champagne, unlike the suited and booted art set you'll find in Europe's larger art capitals, London, Paris, Brussels. (laughs) Amsterdam is a city of immigrants. Over 45% of the people dwelling here are ethnic minorities. Many artists would argue it's this multicultural mishmash that feeds the city's fresh creative pulse where eye-grabbing street art and graffiti mingles with ancient sculptures of past kings or heroes, even heroines. Amsterdam's art museums are some of the finest in the world. Several of them, the Rijksmuseum, the Rembrandt House, the Van Gogh Museum, the Stedelijk Museum and the Mokko, which features more than one Banksy, are all located in one grand square in the city centre, called the Museumsplein. Contemporary artists find fertile ground in two of the city's prestigious art residencies, the Rijksacademie and Der Ateliers. Competition for entry into both is fierce. Struggle seems universal for artists, including Amsterdam's grand master of colour, Van Gogh. If you take a gaze over the Dutch painter's short 10-year career, It's impossible to separate his work and evolving artistic maturity with his much-talked-about mental struggles. I chat about this with Brege Geritz, the Van Gogh Museum's newest art historian in training. Already, she's an oracle for all things Van Gogh, about his past challenges and triumphs, but also how his work, and the man himself, somehow lives on in the present. I do think that most people have heard the story about the ear, they've heard maybe about suicide, and that kind of followed him around, whereas he's so much more than that. Van Gogh is a painter, his life story, you cannot really detach it from the art because it's so intertwined and it's so important for people as well. Before that, Van Gogh turned his hand, unsuccessfully, to other jobs. But it wasn't until Van Gogh turned 27 that he began to take drawing seriously. He, he works for the first five years in the Netherlands and then he moves to Paris, which completely changes his palette, his technique, everything changes. And that's where he starts making the bright uh, coloured works that are so famous nowadays. And after two years in Paris, he moves to Arles. And actually, I think that's the high point of his career. That's when he's really hopeful. He wants to start this studio of the South. Gauguin is going to be coming to Arles as well. He, he really has very big plans for modern art and, and high hopes and dreams. Van Gogh's much speculated friendship with Paul Gauguin, the French post-impressionist and symbolist best known for his seductive, dark, voluptuous portrayals of Polynesian women, is also a little intriguing, especially Gauguin's role in Vincent cutting off his own ear and only weeks after they'd moved in together to form their own artist-in-residence. Vincent's hopes were so high for the collaboration, there was so much at stake, and these were two very stubborn characters living in a tiny, tiny house. The situation between the two artists reached boiling point. Vincent suffered an attack that resulted in a self-severed ear. 
It's reported that he wrapped it in paper and gave it to a prostitute in the local village. This event marked a turning point for Van Gogh, one that ends with him admitting himself into an asylum. But his painting took on a remarkable new tone. He paints The Starry Night from his room in 1889, a work that continues to captivate audiences and be reimagined in numerous modern formats and LED light installations worldwide. I get the sense that Brege and so many others in the art world feel he's metaphorically still alive. I mean, she talks about him in the present tense. It's kind of endearing. And in many senses, he still is. It's the feeling that people have when they come to the museum is like, everyone says like, oh, if we could have seen this, if we could have known. It's this, that sentiment. You want to support him and like everyone, everyone's in his corner. Go gone. Go gone. I love their the whole the whole shitty roommate situation between Van Gogh and Gauguin. It's amazing. That's I can't believe can't they see. didn't make a movie about that, or maybe they did. I haven't seen it. The Odd Couple, <laughs> but like really odd. <laughs> I think it was rough on poor Vincent. Yeah, I got that impression from Brega as well. You know, there's, there was a real um, a real disappointment. You know that he wasn't creating that artist in residence that Van Gogh was dreaming about and, you know, wanted so desperately to make that summer school in Arles. And the ear thing. I mean, it's obviously the thing that everybody <laughs> just knows about. Cut off, you've never thought about cutting off your ear? Why the ear? It's easier than a toe. It had to be dramatic. I think I think he thought that it was a one-off, though. You know, I think it was like, from from what um, Brege was saying to me, that he... Yeah. He was shocked. He shocked himself in that act. He kind of, you know, out of body experience type thing. Right. But you can see it in his paintings. His craziness. The the craziness, but also his particularity and that way he had of seeing the world. I think that's why in that interview, or people have this like relationship with him. Totally. His, it's like you're in the mental struggle with him. Yeah. You know, and he never he never could get a job and keep it, and everything was he, you know working against him. His parents didn't approve of him trying to become a painter. So he was he was swimming upstream, and I think people really like identify with that. It's the ultimate artist story. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. The singer Lauren theft we heard about at the start. The smashed glass, the dead of night, the six million dollar Van Gogh. It shocked the world. No one knows who the thieves are, where they've gone, and what they've done with the painting. But one thing's for sure, it's now in the underworld. This is where stolen paintings always end up, being used as a kind of leverage in an illicit drug or arms deal, or even a currency in themselves. It's also why they're so hard to track and find, but not for everyone because there is someone who knows just how to catch an art thief. Someone who can do things the law cannot, because to find stolen art, sometimes you need an art detective. And in Amsterdam, there lives the world's finest. His name is Arthur Brand. You know, they stole it right under my nose. And I thought, oh my God, I never take anything personal in my life. Why should you, you know? It's mostly business, but uh, this, this case, I do very personal. Arthur is the self-styled Indiana Jones of the art world. He's a globe-trotting maverick who uses his criminal contacts to recover priceless rings, Nazi statues, biblical artefacts, even a Picasso. So when a Van Gogh was stolen in Amsterdam, Arthur's own backyard, the game was afoot. 
too, <laughs> it's too close to call. You know, I cannot tell you too much now. But uh, I would say if, if I were the guys who had it or who did it, I would become nervous. That's all I can say. But let's backtrack. You don't get to say the words art detective without really explaining what it is and what it entails. Because Arthur Brand is not a made-up fictional character in an Agatha Christie novel. He's a real Dutchman. It took us a little while to get hold of him. He's pretty elusive. But after some sleuthing of our own, we got our man. Hey. Hello, Arthur. Hi. I just woke up. <laughs> no worries. How's it going? If you Google Arthur, like I did, you see photos of him in black Steve Jobs-style turtlenecks or sartorial blazers and Oxford shoes. Very dapper. Very Poirot-esque. But perhaps this was Arthur's day off. Because today, he was wearing a black t-shirt, sweatpants and a Dodgers cap, languorously laying back on his sofa, chain-smoking cigarettes. I mean, he is Dutch, after all. I like the, uh, the Picasso in the background. Yeah, I just hang him up yesterday. I had it in my uh, bedroom. Yeah. Normally, I don't like uh, to hang up copies. But in this case, uh, the real one had been in the same spot, you know. Above Arthur, as we speak, is a print of Picasso's Bust de Femme from 1938 a kaleidoscopic portrait of his muse, Dora Maar, all smashing colours and weirdly protruding appendages. A Picasso, basically. But last year, in that very same spot, Arthur got to hang up the original, just for the night. Because he found it. A lost Picasso worth $70 million. It's probably his greatest find to date. We'll hear some more about it soon. And there have been many, many finds for Arthur over the years. He's tracked down countless stolen paintings and artefacts. Amazingly, he often does it without being reimbursed at all for his efforts. So our first question is, why? And then, how on earth do you get into that line of work? Well, I was always interested in history, antiquities, art, the mysteries of the past, you know, and crime. It's always spectacular. And I started uh, to become an art collector when I was a student. And then you find out that there are a lot of fakes. So then I started to read about it. And then you read that 30% in the art market is fake. The art market is one of the biggest markets in the world. You know, 30% is plain fake. And I thought, why is nobody talking about it? Why is nobody um, investigating this? Art crime is big business. Some estimates put it in excess of $6 billion per year. And the CIA reckon the art black market is the fourth most profitable illegal enterprise in the world, only behind drugs, arms and human trafficking. And only about 5 to 10% of these stolen works ever make it back to their actual owners. In the Netherlands, the police actually only have one guy dedicated to finding stolen art, which is odd because Arthur says that the Dutch capital is one of the world's hotspots for art crime. This is a city full of art, and for my work, like uh, chasing stolen art, you have to be here. Because, you know, art crime is a very international uh, affair, and um, most of the, the famous Dutch criminals are in or around Amsterdam, and you have to meet them. And I think that makes it a very special place to, to investigate crime. This is the weird thing. Amsterdam is a massively safe city the fourth safest in the world, in fact, well above everywhere else in Europe. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have an underworld. Amsterdam is well known as a bolt hole for organised crime. 
those are the people you have to face, the big drug lords, uh, secret services, terrorist groups who are dealing in illicit, illegal antiquities. You know, it's almost always scary. I've seen guns. I have had to deal with people who are killers. I have had meetings in, in the wood, you know, at two o'clock in the morning uh, with people with, with baklavas on. So this is the world Arthur is working in. Killers and art dealers. Two sides of a priceless ancient coin. As we found out, walking that line involves holding on to some very basic principles. The most important thing is don't betray anybody. I once had to make a deal with quite a big criminal. I invited him to my home and we were sitting there and he said to me, Arthur, my boss told me this. Tell this guy, this Arthur Brand, that if he betrays us, we will find out where he lives and we will cut his head off. I said, look, dude, you are sitting on my couch. You know where I live. Whatever I say is true because I would never betray you. I don't want to look over my shoulder and have somebody put a grenade uh, through my window. So that's, that's their language. You have to speak their language. Arthur's discoveries include the 2,000-year-old Forbidden Gospel of Judas, two of Hitler's most prized horse statues, even Oscar Wilde's ring. When Arthur starts on a case, it usually begins with him hearing about it from one of his criminal contacts. He'll then work with, and sometimes without, the police to start solving the case. His most impressive recovery to date has to be the $70 million Picasso. So the Picasso, which I recovered last year, was stolen in 1999 from the yard of one of the richest uh, shikes in the world. It normally started with rumours. Somebody called me and said, look Arthur, there's a Picasso floating around, a stolen Picasso stolen from a ship. And then uh, people in Amsterdam started talking about it, that it might be in Amsterdam, but I had no clue which, which painting it was. So I started asking around and somebody told me, look Arthur, this painting you are searching for might have been in the hands of a real estate man who had no idea it was stolen. He got it as a payment. This is his name. So I told him, look, uh, Mr. Blah, blah, blah. I know the whole story. And I go to the police, but you have one chance to tell me your side of the story. And he took the bait, you know. So he told me which Picasso it was, uh, how he got it, and that he had passed it on. And he had no idea what it was now, but he could give me some leads. And I said, well, your story is exactly as I heard it, so um, you told the truth. You know, I had no idea. So I, I took it from there, and um, in the end, I managed to to track it, to trace it back. What, what does it feel like then when you've been working on a case for so long and you finally get your hands on it? How, how does that feel? Well, that's the thing. Um, on the way, sometimes it takes 10 years. But then, in the end, you know, you find this... Uh, Picasso in the woods, you take it to your home at night, you are there, you take off the plastic and you see this 7070 worth million Picasso in your hands. And you know it will be headlines all over the world tomorrow. And then you put it on your wall for one night. You know, that's that's so exciting. And people say, oh, you must be rich. You, I don't earn anything with these, with these cases, you know, but uh, who can say they had a Picasso on their wall? You'd think finding a Picasso is about as good as it gets for an art detective, wouldn't you? But there's one artist who holds more sway, for Arthur at least, because Arthur is from Amsterdam. And to the Dutch, there's one artist who stands head and shoulders above the rest, Vincent van Gogh. But Arthur has never yet recovered a stolen van Gogh. He's come close, but not quite. 
with the heist at the Singalaran, this might be his year. Arthur Brand. Brand. Arthur Brand. Does he have a cravat and a monocle? I have seen him in a cravat. Get out. Monocle, yes. no, but I have seen him in a cravat, yeah. It's so odd, like, him just taking it on his own back to, like, find these things. Like, not being... Like, this is the part that I, I don't understand. Yeah, me neither. I really don't understand No reward? Like, no reward. I mean, what's going on? How does he make his money? Well, I think so. He, I think he is still, like, an antiques dealer art mm. collector mm. and I think where the money is coming from is probably I mean he's a very good self-publicist right and he's doing a documentary at the moment right there's plans for films and various mm. other things which I probably can't uh, say <laughs> anything can't about on a podcast sorry Arthur because um, I guess I think he just does this for the love of it no? for the love of it yeah and so he can hang out with criminals and drink vodka I was gonna say yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just that moment, that moment of getting it back home and unplasticking it and just putting it on your wall I mean, for one day. It's such a cinematic, yeah. like, $70 million perfect, dollar wall. Yeah. <laughs> just for the night. I think, he, yeah, he likes the thrill. Yeah. It feels like. And he loves baklava. <laughs> and he loves baklava. <laughs> it's so sweet that he's got, like, his white whale as well. Yeah. It's like the, it's just the perfect sort of like, I am Dutch, I need to find a Van Gogh. When, what a perfect way to look at Amsterdam, right? The two sides, Vincent van Gogh, that image, yeah. and then this guy. <laughs> Arthur Brand. The Crusader. <laughs> yeah. We'll be back in a minute with more from Oki and Arthur in Amsterdam. We'll see you in a bit. Hi, everyone. Circa's recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The most infamous Van Gogh theft of all of them happened nearly 20 years ago, in circumstances that are eerily similar to the Singalaran theft, the smash-and-grab job we told you about at the beginning of the story. Only this time, it was from the artist's spiritual home, the Van Gogh Museum. On December the 7th, 2002, two paintings, Congregation Leaving the Reformed Church in Nuenen and View of the Sea at Scheveningen, were stolen from the Van Gogh Museum in broad daylight. Arthur worked this case too, but we'll come back to him in a minute. Because so far, we've only heard one side of the story, the side of the hero. But every high story needs a thief. Every Sherlock needs a Moriarty. I started uh, stealing when I was eight or something. Nobody teached me, taught me that. Nobody showed me the way, I just did it. This is Octave Durham, but everyone calls him Oki. He's an art thief. It was Oki who stole those two Van Goghs back in 2002. He's tall, with sculpted icy cheekbones, constantly breaking into an easy grin, a domineering but charming presence. I'm not bragging, not for normal people I don't brag, but to other 
crooks, criminals. I brag when we have, when we talk our stories. And then I said, I must have some of criminal world record. I did thing maybe eight, nine, ten thousand burglaries. If Arthur is the world's greatest art detective, there's probably an argument to say that Oki is the world's greatest burglar. He reckons he's nearly done 10,000 burglaries in his life, which, hyperbole or not, is completely insane. So why does he do it? For the thrill, you'd think, right? Everybody thinks that they think because of the thrill of it. I never did things because of a thrill or a kick. I only had one time I had a kick, a real kick. That was when I was locked up in the safety deposits, you know, in the safe, and the lights went out, the door closed, and it goes in like, boom, and you're like, and the whole system goes down. And I had adrenaline from my eye pure, like a tear, not a tear drop, but a tear line, like, because I knew, now we go, you know, we got to get go. We're going to get rich. <laughs> and we became rich. Oki did those safety deposit jobs in 2000 couple of years before he took the Van Goghs. But why the switch to stealing art? It's a much more difficult game. Where I'm from, we are not interested in museums, you know what I mean? Where I'm from, we don't give a shit about art. We don't care. We, we like money. We like gold. <laughs> we like cars. We like, that's art value. We don't see value in paintings. Why I stole these two paintings and I said, yeah, the other painting had a little more thick painting on it. And I said, yeah, that's more expensive. The two paintings he took from the museum are textbook early Van Goghs. And in terms of colour, they're kind of grungy, dismal even. A far cry from the vibrant sunflowers and starry night. So it wasn't art that propelled Oki to do the theft. More the money, the challenge, or the notoriety. So I've been in the Van Gogh at that time, maybe six or seven, eight times. All of a sudden I said, hey, there is a weak spot. That's how I did the burglary. Oki and his accomplice, Hank, knew they had to plan a way in and out to fool the cops. So before breaking in, they put up a ladder on one side of the museum, went up on the roof and put a rope to abseil down the other side for their escape. But this was all a ruse. Oki knew the police would see the ladder and assume they were stuck on the roof and would have to come back down. The rope on the other side was hidden from the cops. It was their real route to freedom. I had to crack the window and I didn't know how big the hole would be. No high-tech laser or glass cutters here. Oki got into the Van Gogh Museum with a sledgehammer. In my head, if it was a small hole, I would take small paintings. If it was big enough, I would take a bigger one. I didn't know nothing about art. Van Gogh's in a bag. Oki went back out the smash window and abseiled down the other side. So if we would hit the windows, we know the cops will be standing next to the ladder, but they wouldn't expect us to exile, that we being exiled from the back of the museum, they went nuts. The cops stood waiting by the ladder, completely fooled. At the time I had a scanner on, so I could hear what they said. I was still at the roof with the rope inside my hands, a bag at my shoulder with these two paintings in, and the cops said, we are here. And I was laughing, I said, but I'm going. Things took a turn here. Oki tripped and slipped down his abseil, nearly crushing the paintings in the fall. He also lost his cap, something he would soon come to regret. Limping to the getaway car, Oki threw the two paintings to Hank, hiding in the footwell, and got behind the wheel. But rather than zoom off, he knew he had to hide in plain sight. So what did I do? I had my ski mask off, I did my window down, 
and I was driving and I'd steal my scanner on and they were panicking and they said, what? Where, did, where did they go? And I was looking at the cops and they were looking at me, but they didn't know I was it. And I was looking and I drove away. <laughs> what happened that day was like a big magic trick. It's unbelievable what happened. With the paintings secured, Oki took them back to his house and laid low. Now he had to sell them. I didn't have a buyer. I just did it. Then I connected uh, Cor van Hout, the famous known Heineken kidnapper. The Heineken kidnappings are hugely infamous in the Netherlands. In 1983, the beer magnate and one of the country's richest men was taken hostage and given back for a ransom of 35 million Dutch guilders, about $60 million in today's money. It was the kidnapping's mastermind, Cor van Hout, who Oki planned to sell the paintings to. He wanted it. He said, I want it. The next day, would, uh, I had to call him at one o'clock. And then it meant you had to call his, his sidekick. And he said something bad happened. And I checked at that time, he got killed. He got assassinated. Cor van Hout got assassinated the day before he was going to buy the paintings from Oki. And at that point, Oki was a bit afraid. He really wanted to get rid of the paintings. I'm religious and I'm superstitious. And then I said, I don't want anything to do with these two paintings anymore. They are cursed. I said, forget this. Forget it. But the paintings had to go somewhere. They couldn't just stay in his house forever. Luckily, Oki's accomplice Hank knew another guy. An Italian mobster. He knew uh, Rafael. Rafael was at that time an uh, Italian guy who had a coffee shop in Amsterdam. The Italian press call him uh, mob boss and he's a leader of Camorra in Naples. And that's who it went to. The Van Gogh ended up in the hands of the mob. I can't say about uh, how much I got for it. I know in the in the press they made him, uh, they said 350,000 euros, but they made a, a mistake. I don't want to say anything about the money because of legal stuff in the Netherlands. The general price for stolen art is about 10% of its actual value. And the two paintings together were at the time estimated at about $4.5 million. So Oki and Hank would have got, quick maths, nearly half a million. So obviously Oki was living the high life for a while, but soon things became too hot in Amsterdam. The police had found a couple of hairs on the cap Oki lost when he fell down the abseil and they were onto him. He had to go on the run. So he headed to Spain, staying first in Ibiza, then somewhat bizarrely in Barcelona with Dutch soccer star Patrick Kluivert. After a couple of years of looking over his shoulder, Oki was eventually caught in Marbella in the country's south. Back in the Netherlands, he was sentenced to three years in jail, but he only actually served just over two. A surprisingly short time, right? But that's how it goes for the Dutch. But what of the paintings? Well, Raphael had sent them off to Naples. They were now in the hands of the Camorra. They would stay there for a while. Dude, that was, that's insane. I know. This whole story is insane. Yeah. <laughs> this is crazy. It's so Hollywood. It's just... I mean, it, just I, three years for selling a price, well, selling a painting to a mobster. But can we go back to and stealing with, with a, sled. a sledgehammer? And, and, a, and a ladder. A ladder, a sledgehammer, a rope? A rope, yeah, that's it. Just some rope. Yeah. 
So they put they put the ladder on one side of the one side of the the museum, yeah, and then abseil down the other because the cops were around the perimeter. Yeah, exactly. they're gonna there, come. There's from a here. ladder. They're gonna come back down the it's ladder. So it's so fucking Benny Hill. Yeah, it's, it's so car- Benny Hill. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Yeah, <laughs> it worked. I just think you'd have more like smart surveillance, wouldn't you? When you're talking like yeah, sixty definitely. million bucks. Yeah, yeah. it's just like a security guard like asleep in a chair with a newspaper. I mean, often face. when you go to museums, that's what it yeah. is. I got I got kicked out of the Tate once. What? Yeah. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. Did you touch a painting? Seriously? I, it was just a reaction. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Do you know what you touched? <laughs> Can you tell me what you I touched? Think it was a Rothko. I think I, Oki and Arthur both made a point about how museums are like woefully uh, the, the security is rubbish, and that if anyone wanted to do it, you basically could. It wouldn't be very hard. You so, could go with a gun or something, and you could just easily do it. So, is this what we're we're, we're telling? Our audience. Yeah. So anyone, anyone out there. <laughs> so listen, times are tough. Coronavirus <laughs> is being hard on all of us. Just go to your local museum with a gun or a sledgehammer. <laughs> wear a beanie. Half a, half a million dollars split. <laughs> I think you've got to be pretty audacious, right, to do this kind of stuff. Yeah. Like just seriously. zero Fs given. I mean, that's the thing. Like, in the end, it's crazy that more stuff isn't stolen mm. all yeah. the time. Yeah. And he also said as well, he was, I mean, when he did the Van Gogh, when he stole the Van Goghs, he was a millionaire at that point because of those safety deposits. Exactly. It clearly wasn't money. He says it's not for a thrill. But he didn't say why. why. He didn't explain. I asked him a few times. He didn't explain why. He actually Maybe he doesn't, doesn't even know what, what's driving him. Yeah. It's just part mm. of his world. Mm. Mm. It's like Van Gogh cutting off his ear. <laughs> <laughs> An act of craziness. If a pair of Van Goghs go missing in Amsterdam, you know there's one person who's going to be on the case. Arthur Brand was on the hunt for those Van Goghs for years. And it was in this process that he first had contact with Oki. You know, Octave Durham, you know, he's my uh, natural opponent. He is one of the most famous art thieves in the world. And I'm a bit of a famous art detective. And we live in the same town, so he's my opponent. It really is a Sherlock Moriarty setup. I was chasing these Van Goghs. He had sold it to the mob. I knew about it. Nobody knew. So um, he was chasing them too because he got out of jail, but they gave him a penalty of $400,000. So he thought, if I get these pieces back, I might get rid of this uh, stupid penalty. So he, he asked a journalist to put me on the wrong trail. He called the journalist and said, call Arthur and ask what he knows. So I told him they are with the mafia. And Octave thought, oh my God, only I know. Gee, uh, he gets close. So then he told the journalist, tell him they had sold it to somebody in Spain. And uh, the journalist called me and I said, no, no, they are still in Naples. So I called the journalist and said, tell Octave they are still in Naples. He shouldn't play tricks with me. For a while, Oki and Arthur were in a cat and mouse hunt, both looking for the paintings, which would be a prize for Arthur and a huge debt relief for Oki. In 2016, the paintings were found. Not by either of them, though. It was not the usual unveiling of a major work of art, Italian police holding tight as they revealed that the painting stolen 14 years ago had been found during an investigation into mafia mobsters. The Italian police in Naples found the paintings in a mafia raid and brought them back to their rightful home, the Van Gogh Museum. They sit here to this day. Their value increased to nearly $100 million because of the heist. So not all bad for Brigenko. And after that, the years of trying to outwit each other, talking through middlemen, Oki and Arthur felt like they had the measure of one another. 
it wasn't a hateful feud anymore. More like competition. You know, we never had met, so... Uh, and then I was eating somewhere in a restaurant right next to the Van Gogh Museum, and I saw Octave. So I left the people I was eating with, I stormed out, and I, and I knocked him on the back, and I said, Octave, you know who I am? He said, of course I know who you are. So we started talking, and I watched him, and I thought, gee, he's like me. He talked with his hands like an Italian guy, like I do. He was talking like for an hour, like I can, you know, and we were, t- and I looked at him and I thought, he's a criminal, I'm not, but my God, are we similar. The two guys are bizarrely similar. The way that they speak, even the thrill they both take in recounting their stories, and their lives have become intertwined now too. And when I had the Picasso on my wall for that night, nobody knew about it, but I wanted to share it with somebody. So, um... I called Octave and I said, Octave, you have no idea what's on my wall tonight. Because he knew what it takes, you know. He had these Van Goghs on his wall. And he said, well, tell me. I said, the Picasso worth 70 million. And he kept silence for like 10 seconds. And he said, is there any chance you're leaving your home for a few minutes tonight? And I said, no way, Octave. And I'm waiting for you here with a big uh, piece of wood. But more than that, the two have actually become something like friends. Oki says they even work together. Arthur Brent is smart. I work with him, and a lot of people don't know, but he actually is my, he turned out to be my companion. But he has his people, I have mine. Us combined can do things that other people can't. He has to do have everything legal. I don't have to. I, I, I'm not responsible to nobody. If something happens, something happens. That's my risk. But together, we can fix a lot of stuff, you know. In 2020, Arthur Brand and Oki were reunited once again the Van Gogh heist at the Singularum Museum. Van Gogh's popularity and the notoriety of the heist that have come before means his work is really coveted by art thieves. Yes, Van Gogh is really a big target now. Octave has done it before, you know. He showed the criminal world, look, I stole a Van Gogh, two Van Goghs, and I sold them to a mobster who really used it in a deal. Oki clearly did show the criminal world something. Definitely the two thieves who did the Singalaran theft anyway. Because this recent Van Gogh theft was so similar to Oki's heist, it's hard not to see that it was planned for its theatricality, deliberately done to look the same. It's ridiculous. I think it's a copycat because uh, this is a guy who steals his Van Gogh and tries to sell it to somebody uh, a camping in the underworld. Just like Octave did. Just like Oki did. So, could it have been Oki? Surely he wouldn't do the same thing twice. I have no clue where the painting is. I was in a hospital, a copycat. I don't know. It looks like it because they're in the same series. The painting they took this year is in the same series as the ones Oki took. They did the same method, the same brazen smash and grab. They actually stole it on Van Gogh's birthday, March 30th. It's all so bizarrely connected, strangely planned, absurdly performative. If you read it in a script, you'd say it was way too far-fetched, especially what happened next. So uh, from day one, I started to, uh, to hunt for it. I got my hands on, on a, a proof-of-life picture of it, and I published it. The thieves actually sent Arthur a proof-of-life photo of the Van Gogh that was stolen proving it's out there, proving it hasn't been destroyed. The first thing Arthur did was call Oki to tell him to come and take a look at it, because it's a, let's say, interesting photo. In the centre, there's the painting. 
You can see that it's real. Another early Van Gogh with those sullen, somber strokes and markings on the back which prove that it's genuine. But on either side of the painting is something else. Oki's face. Twice. He said, now we go to my house and I'm going to show you something and I'm sure you're going to be in shock. Okay, we go to your house. Uh, two cameras set up, opens his laptop. And all of a sudden, this picture comes in the screen from the painting, the, the, the New York Times and my book. On the left of the Proof of Life photo is a copy of the New York Times, printed just after the theft. Its front page features an interview with both Arthur and Oki talking about the heist. And Oki's picture is staring out of it. And on the right of the photo? Well, it's Oki again. A copy of his biography this time, Master Thief. The thieves had set up a photo blatantly trying to implicate Oki in the crime, or at least pointing out the similarities with the 2002 case. One of my first reactions is, I'm going to get into trouble. My second is in my head, is like, hey, my book is going all over the world. And there is a moment in this that I'm angry, but you, I, I don't show it. So what the hell is going on here? Either somebody take it as a gesture to me, without these people knowing it, or these people might be in control and just want to, uh, to give me the finger, you know? For me, it's their signal like, you said it, we are copycat. Look, guy, you're right, we, put in, we have read his book, we have put his book on the picture, so uh, we have an admitted and a good luck hunting us. The hunt is most certainly on. The game, definitely afoot. And Arthur is working day and night to get it done because this would be his most important find to date. I, I wish I could tell you a thing I, I, that happened to me with this Van Gogh thing a couple of days ago. A big mobster showed up and uh, I cannot tell you. It's, it's, but anyway. Are you sure? I'm sure. Not even just a little bit? Mm, well, I was, okay, a, a little bit. Uh, I'm, I'm asking around uh, to big mobster guys, uh, if you hear anything, um, let me know about Van Gogh. And uh, sometimes uh, somebody shows up out of the blue with a bodyguard, and the bodyguard says, tell your story. And they'll you tell your story about what's going on, and the guy uh, doesn't say anything, he doesn't even blink in 20 minutes. And then he leaves. And you think, oh my God, who was this? And then they leave, and you, you walk to your home, and you look over your shoulder, and you think, oh my God, what was this? Are you optimistic? Yes, um, you know, police and other people give it up after two years, but um, I never give up and, you know, I never had a Van Gogh on my wall. It would be great to have this Van Gogh one out on my wall and then hand it back. So, um, it, yeah, it might be one of the best cases because, you know, um, this time it's personal. And this time <laughs> it's personal. When, when this started, I didn't realize this was going to be a love story. <laughs> yeah, it is. The end of it. The most interesting thing is these new thieves. Like, yeah. what are they playing at? Yeah. What is you this? Know. Like, a, is this like fan fiction where they're trying to say something to Augie or just trying head, to implicate him? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a frame, a classic frame. Yeah. Are we? So it's still, it's an unsolved. It's unsolved. As of broadcast, yeah, it is the Singalaran theft. Um, Arthur's on the case. If you follow him on Twitter, he's. Often updating these very cryptic <laughs> little tweets. Really? Kind of saying, yeah, like, if I were the person, I would be a bit getting nervous. All these kind of things. <laughs> really? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. he does that he's stuff? Like Twitter, yeah, yeah, yeah. Twitter taunting? Oh, yeah, 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 literally. Yeah. And also, you've struck, struck up a little bit of a friendship with Oki yourself. 
<laughs> Your buddies yeah. with Aki now. Yeah, me and Aki, yeah, we kind of exchange exchange messages here and there. He sends me a lot of uh, uh, kind of golden age hip-hop videos. Hey. He's a big Ice-T fan. Mm. Respectable. Yeah. The world ain't nothing but <laughs> bitches and paintings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, I just said that. Okay, so here's a question. Is it disappointing to you that it's unsolved still? I mean, Arthur's got to find it. If it ends any other way, it would be pretty devastating. Because especially with the like, with the 2002 case where he didn't get it and there was this cat and mouse thing, yeah. that leaves it you know, on tenterhooks now that if he gets it. And then for you, Jen, when you went into the story and coming out of the story, did you also have this like Hollywood vision of art theft and all of this? God no, I don't. I don't think there's any glamour to uh, this. I think the whole sledgehammer and ladder thing has proved that. But um, yeah, I keep expecting the Pink Panther music to come on, and right. you know, it just feels a bit farcical. It does. It's yeah. on. Yeah. Now we need one more pun. I think we need one more Sherlock Holmes I got, pun. <laughs> what did uh, What did Mike Tyson say to Vincent Van Gogh? Oh no. He, you gonna eat that? Oh no! <laughs> Just put some crickets under that. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you next week. This week's saved pins are all about the art. We asked our guests for some of their favorite galleries and museums in Amsterdam to make your trip there a cultured one. Number one is the Van Gogh Museum. Where else to start in the home of Vincent than the Van Gogh Museum, found on the Museum's Plein in the city centre. In their permanent exhibition, you'll be able to see the sunflowers, a bunch of the self-portraits, the bedroom, the almond blossom, the lot. Plus, those two paintings that Aki stole, the view of the sea at Scheveningen and congregation leaving the Reformed Church in Nuenen. They've been meticulously restored to their former glory after they were returned in 2016. Number two, packed. Located on Zibergapad 53, this non-profit exhibition for contemporary art also organizes large-scale solo presentations through which the audience can gain unconventional insights into how artists think. It's never predictable, and it's never boring. So number three is the Four Linden Museum, 30 minutes from Amsterdam in the coastal region of Vassenaar. The Four Linden Museum is a modern art oasis nestled among sand dunes and forest. Head there by train and enjoy a unique blend of art, nature, and architecture, and over 60 epic international artists and sculptors in one super tranquil hit. Number four, the Singalorin Museum. Head back to the outskirts of Amsterdam to visit the Singalorin Museum, the place where Van Gogh's parsonage garden at Nuenen in spring was stolen in March 2020. Beyond trying to work out just how they did it, the museum collection is really impressive on its own. And if Arthur's done his job right, you might get to see the Van Gogh back at home next time you visit. And number five is Coffee Shop Catch 33. Let's be honest. If you're going to Amsterdam, you're going to want to indulge in some of the city's more debaucherous delights. Aki suggested we try out the Catch 33 coffee shop just near Vesterpark. If you want to smoke a few joints in the company of locals rather than red-eyed tourists, this is the place to go. And who knows, you might even catch Aki for a chat. That's it for this week. Next week, our Conspiracy September continues. 
Harriet Davies and I head to London for a look at espionage in the capital. From the icon that is James Bond to a couple of real-life MI5 whistleblowers to find out how much fact is in the fiction. We'll see you then. This episode of Passport was written by Harry Stott and Jennifer Carr and edited by Harry Stott. Big thanks to Arthur Brand, Oki Durham, Evie Vingling, Reggie Garitz, Wouter Vanderlan, and Hugh Welchman for their time and stories about this wonderful city and this utterly mad story. The music on this episode was written by the wonderful Nick Tanner with extra tunes from TMG, United Empire Loyalists, Klatu Varada Necktie, Wolf Dick, Lieutenant Fitzgibbon's Men, Finn the Human, The Standard Model, Music Box, The Beards, Oracle, Fancy Pants, The Home Invasion, Foxy Bassey, Kevin McLeod, Edward Grieg, Cloud Debussy, Eric Sati, and Richard Wagner. The show is mixed and mastered by Julian Kwasniewski. Eliza Engel is our production assistant. Stacy Book, Dominique Ferrari, and Avi Glijanski would smash windows, kick down doors, and even saw through metal to get their hands on a Van Gogh. They also executive produced the show, which is hosted by me and a man who prefers chilling out with a schmoke and a pancake, Andres Bartos. We'll see you in the next place.